Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest for this special Friday bonus episode is Patrick White, a screenwriter and producer whose credits include Jack Brooks' Monster Slayer and the 2014 short film The Garage. He makes his directorial debut this year with Queen of Spades, a reworking of a 2015 Russian horror film about some unassuming kids who make the terrible mistake of invoking an ancient demon. It'll be available on digital and on demand this Tuesday, June 15th. Patrick picked Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, the Oscar-winning animated spectacular from producers Phil Lord and Christopher Miller and directors Bob Parachetti, Peter Ramsey, and Rodney Rothman. It's a frantic, visually alive adventure that brings the beloved comic book character Miles Morales to the big screen for the first time, voiced by Shamik Moore, gives him a richly realized origin story, and throws him immediately into an incredibly complicated adventure in the company of half a dozen other Spider-People, including Haley Steinfeld's Gwen Stacy and Jake Johnson's older, sadder version of the Peter Parker we all know and love. And they have to save the universe and the multiverse because nothing is easy for a spider person. But it's a lot of fun to watch. This is someone else's movie. It's it it is a, it's one of my favorite movies. It is it it just it did a lot of things for me. So in the in the sense of brought me back to a kid, I didn't really know about it at the at the beginning. Um, I remember like I caught an hour of it at the last hour of a plane ride. Uh-huh. And so I, that was my first impression of it was on this tiny little screen. And I was like blown away. And I just felt like an idiot. Cause I was like, how did I not know about this? And why is it so good? Um, yeah. and then, and then subsequently, you know, cause I remember watching at the Oscars, the, the guys getting, uh, I think they were um, nominated for the Oscars. And I was like, you know, this looks interesting, but I, I just, for whatever reason, I didn't absorb it. And then, yeah, just, it really, really left a massive impression on me. Yeah, it is. Um, I saw it theatrically. I, I reviewed it. So there was an early yeah. screening at like the, it was one of those things. So I don't know how familiar you were going to be. Maybe even the listeners are going to be with the way movies are screened for the, the way movies were screened for the press in the before the times, press. which was that we'd usually see them, you know, we'll have a, a press screening for, for invited critics at 10 a.m. Um, yeah. in a VIP theater, usually at somewhere in the city. Um, or we'll be invited to a public screening at seven o'clock on a Wednesday night yeah. to see a film the week it opens so we can see it with an audience that some, you know, like the action franchise people insist on that. This one was four o'clock on a Saturday afternoon. Uh, at either the end of November or the beginning of December, a couple of weeks before it came out. And it wasn't in one of the best theaters at Scotiabank. It was just, they weren't sure it would be ready in time for the TFCA screenings, for the critic screenings. So they threw one together. They invited some people. And I just had this bizarre experience of going to see a movie in the middle of the day with a bunch of people who had just obviously been yanked in at the last minute. Uh, And five or six people from the TFCA who could make that booking. And I took, uh, I brought my friend, Corey Mintz, who's a huge comic book nerd and friend of the podcast a couple of times. And we were both kind of like, I mean, if they thought this was good, they would make more of an effort, right? This is a weird way to show it to us. And then it started and we were just like, oh, they just didn't know. They didn't know how to sell it. Mm. And they took a flyer on it and, and it's, it was a blast. It played, the room loved it. I had seen a clip at the end of Venom. There's a, the sequence where, um, Peter B. Parker gets dragged through the graveyard where Miles where Miles yeah. meets Peter B. Parker and drags yeah. him through the graveyard. Uh, they had shown that at the end of Venom and everybody was like, well, that looks weird because it does not belong with Venom, but that was the Spider-Man property Sony had. And 
Yeah. Within five minutes, you know, you're seeing something that's never been attempted before. And then within 20 minutes, it's all in. It's just so much fun. Well, and I think, you know, one of the things for me, I, and I was a, I was, me and my best friend, you know, grew up in the Monopoly. So we grew up on Pacific Avenue. Right. And I was 198 and he was 189. And we, we had a shared uh, comic book uh, collection. And it was always interesting because I was very much influenced from the art side. Um, and he was always very much influenced by the story. And interestingly enough, he became a, he became an animator. And so really focused on the art and I became a filmmaker, you know, ideally focused on the story, yeah. but um, you know, and amazing, like kind of right at that time that Todd McFarlane was making, you know, the, the classic kind of Spider-Man uh, moved away from amazing Spider-Man and made Spider-Man. And it was always kind of interesting because it was like, I never liked spectacular Spider-Man for whatever reason. It was just like, all right, spectacular is its own world. That's not a world I go into. And, and so when I first started seeing um, Spider-Verse, it was like, to your point, you're seeing something different. And I think, you know, if I, if I, and I'm no animation expert, but, you know, Toy Story or the Pixar guys redefined what Disney, right? Because I think everybody was always trying to be what Disney was. And then Pixar came along and then everybody tried to be kind of what Pixar was. And then this, this kind of just knew it was something different. And, and they just, they hit it and they made it feel like that comic book. They gave it that kind of texture and look, but then ultimately the story is just excellent. And you're getting into, you know, to, to think about introducing a new Spider-Man and for a, you know, collective of fans to embrace that and actually love it and pull it off is a massive task and they did it beautifully. So. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It's exhilarating. It really is. And the, the, the texture of it, the way it's approached, all of these things were stuff that I wouldn't have expected necessarily from Phil Lord and Chris Miller, who, you know, they're, mm -hmm. they, I love everything they do and I have to stop being surprised by that. That's how I basically reconcile myself. But that was the, the thing when the movie was over, it's just like, I don't even know why I worried. It was mostly just about the way it was presented to us rather than the film itself. But after, you know, Clone High or uh, the Jump Street movies, the Lego movies, these guys have this amazing ability to understand the essence of a property and make it. And, you know, obviously one way to do it is just infuse it with emotional issues, which is their thing. Mm -hmm. um, but by handing it off to the people that made it, Bob Parachetti and Peter Ramsey and Rodney Rothman, um, and just saying, you guys know what you're doing. We trust you. I, I don't know that many producers that do that. I don't know that many people who've built like an artistic filmography mm -hmm. that that is as open-hearted as these guys have. And then if, if you've seen the Mitchells versus the Machines and you have kids, so you probably have, mm -hmm. uh, same thing. They just, they found another way to tell a story that you think you're tired of. Yeah. And bring it fully to life. And and in this case, you know, introducing Miles Morales and having him not be questioned as someone who becomes Spider-Man. I think that's the other thing, because th that seemed to be my understanding of the character was that he was an underdog Spider-Man replacement in the comics. And right. here they just make him a kid who is Spider-Man now. It's just yeah. how it works. And, and by killing off 
you know, original flavor Chris Pine Spider-Man, there is this instant emotional connection for 10 seconds that that becomes the Uncle Ben thing, right? Like it's different, but it's the same motivation without hanging a lantern on it or or piling on. Even the stuff with Prowler then kind of translates onto it. But he's just a, an overmatched kid without the the massive crushing issues of Peter Parker. And that lets him have fun with it in a way that Peter Parker like isn't allowed to. Yep. So we get to be part of the first like hundred percent gleeful, joyful, positive Spider-Man origin story that's ever been made as a movie. And and at the same time, they got to introduce all these alternates as well. And oh, yeah. some of the alternates, you know, then you know, Gwen or you know, Peter B. Parker, or, you know, like Penny yeah. Parker. Not only were they doing it with one, but they were doing it with all these other ones and and you know, just introducing it and like I think you you kind of hit it the, the emotional element there um and let him and then let each one have their kind of uncle ben right and so to me for miles yes definitely with with peter parker but then also with his uncle the, the prowler um but you're getting that sense from everybody and kind of they can all identify with them and now it lets that that web you know pun intended lets them go and explore all this other this other web but the other piece of it is just how, and I don't, um, I, I worked at a, a video game company uh, for a little while and a lot of the animators and the artists there, I had never really gotten too deep into the art books. Oh yeah. And I don't know if you've ever bought or seen the art book for Spider-Verse. It I've is seen it, but no, I haven't had the chance. It, it, in, and I have a bunch of the Pixar ones and some of the Pixar ones are good. Some of them are, are less good. But the Spider-Verse one is incredible. It is really incredible because they show a lot of the early art to show how they were shaping that story, you know, how they were shaping the, the look of it. Um, and it's just extremely deep and rich. And again, like I think after I got off that plane and I got a chance to see this in the full thing, then it was a matter of like, all right, how was I so you know, so dumb that I missed this and then starting to try and engage with it. And then, you know, had a chance to watch it with my girls and, and, and they loved it. And that's the other thing. I think it's, it's, it's also a very hard thing. How do you make something entertaining for an older audience, but also that younger audience. And, um, and this movie is, it's a, it's a roller coaster as well. It doesn't really, it's, it's, I think it's it might be even over two hours um, or right, right at that. It's just around there. Yeah. But it is moving the whole time. It is really, really moving. Yeah. It's, uh, it's amazing how, um, I'm trying to figure out how to, how to fold in my thought here. Uh, there's this thing that all the other Spider-Man movies do where, they're sort of exhaustedly presenting you the origin story. Like the yeah. smartest thing that the Marvel films did was have it happen, just pick up in Civil War six months after the bite and it doesn't matter. And he learned and we saw, and I don't think Ben Parker's name is ever fully mentioned in the Marvel movies, but there's little things here and there. Peter's luggage, his suitcase in Far From Home has Ben's initials on it. And it's just there because for God's sake, we already know. Like yeah. the audience knows. Yeah. And having having uh, Spider-Verse do that thing where it's just like, okay, let's go through this one more time and make it a running gag for every single character, including Spider-Ham, which, I mean, if anyone doesn't need an origin story, it's a pig who looks like a spider. It's all right there. Uh, it is like, it, it, 
it creates a sort of pacing, right? Like there's momentum, but it also gives you the chance to breathe and go back to the origin story as frenetic as it is. Yeah. And um, yeah, the way you said that they've all lost someone and they have this the collective shared moment of, of sighing and listing off the names of the dead, it gives it a little gravity, right? Like in the middle of all the foolishness and all the, the stuff that keeps pulling miles back uh, as well. It's like, obviously the, the moral of every animated feature is that you have to learn to believe in yourself. But when yeah. you're Spider-Man, like if you don't believe in yourself, people are going to die. And there's an urgency to it all that, that is um, its own momentum, right? Like it's a freight train. You're right. It just doesn't stop moving, but it's also, it's got this amazing knack for finding silent little tableau, like the bagel stuff or yep. the invisible computer heist, which is similar, like not quite the bagel stuff, but it's like bagel adjacent. I don't know how to explain it. It manages to be high stakes and still funny because yep. we're grounded in the neuroses and the, and the panic and everything else that is so absolutely human. Um, even when you have like Nicolas Cage as a, as a black and white Nazi punching Spider-Man running around being, you know, as ridiculous as Nicolas Cage is allowed to be. Yeah. Um, and still kind of have a little sadness to him. Well, and I think, you know, going back to the believing in yourself and I think the, you know, going just fundamentally, it's about jumping off. Right. And it, mm-hmm. it's in, I love the infusion of humor everywhere where it always kind of tied back to his untied shoes and that little moment, you know, with Peter Parker before Peter Parker dies, he mentioned his shoes. And then, but it's like these times where he's going to the top of a building, he's going to jump. Then he switches minds, goes around to the other one. And then as he's becoming what he believes is his Spider-Man with, you know, the new painting of the suit and stuff and jumping off the giant and then, really believing in himself and 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 there are these you know those like like you just said there there are these frames in that movie and there's that one example where he's going towards he's jumped off the roof and he's going to flying towards the the uh the ground but the image is reversed they have him falling in in the city above and it's just these, and I think they even used it for the poster. I think that was one yeah. of the posters, just these gorgeous, gorgeous frames that you could tell. And, and if you read the, the art book, you know, going back to the, the producers, like giving the directors the capability to allow them to, to drive it the way they wanted in the art book, the, that's also very clear that they really let the artists infuse their story and their feel. And I think because you have, you know, anime, you have black and white, you have all the, you know, you have, you have all these styles that then it gave that freedom to really try a whole bunch of things out as well. The genius of the concept is that you don't have to pick a style, right? Like it lets you have everything. You can incorporate anime and, Warner Brothers stuff like there's a the the Blu-ray has a a full-on Warner Brothers Spider-Ham cartoon like designed like a Mary Melodies, and it's not yeah. totally satisfying, but it is proof of concept. Like you can actually yeah. imagine an entire Spider-Ham picture this way because they've already told us that's what the rules are for him. Yeah. And by having a multiverse where everybody just slams into this one and has to deal with the normal reality or the established reality, then you're allowed to just be as goofy as you want to be. And there were moments watching it where I actually thought i mean it's an it's deliberate but it was strangely off-putting that my first time through is like the the textures of comic book panels are replicated so thoroughly that i thought for a second the 3d filter had been switched on and there was something wrong it actually pulled me out 
Um, And as soon as I realized that was intentional, it was easier, but just the idea that, you know, like people, the, the idea of filmmakers who are confident enough in their audience to get it, to understand that, you know, this is an anime reference, or this is a cartoon reference that is most realistically 60 years old uh, and predates almost everybody in the room, but we were all raised on it. So it doesn't matter. Like we've been soaking in this culture, whether or not it was Spider-Man derivative or, or specific to Spider-Man, we've, we've all breathed this air. And so it was that like the confidence of the movie that just says, no, we're going to do it all. And you can keep up. We know you can. Well, and, and this is where, you know, you, you hope with these massive brands like a Spider-Man that they get that opportunity to really go and swing for the fences on something. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and because if you do allow someone that, that freedom to, to go and try something and they have that passion and they really have that drive, you can see how it turns out. Um, and it's just a matter of it, it, it comes through that confidence that they had and just let the audience member go, go and enjoy it uh, and discover it. And it's, it's a, it's a really refreshing thing. Um, and it's, yeah, it comes down to just a beautiful, beautiful movie. And um yeah, I'll be I'll be rewatching it, you know, for for years to come. So, um, yeah, yeah. No, I know. I'm I'm just like I have this urge to put it on right now, which is going to be distracting. Um, it the, is the other piece of it. Is, the other the other thing is is that in that I wish I would have seen it in a um, theater. Is the sound? The sound is also really impeccable. Yeah, uh, and they infuse some pretty. You know, it's some some really good songs that are are positioned really well. But the, you know, because of that art style and because of it, you know, looking at just a comic book coming to life, I feel like they did a very good job of almost separating some of the at, at points some of what you're seeing and then simplifying just like the tapping of the feet or kind of you know there's the music and then there's this somewhat simple layer of sound effects. Um, that really let you engage and really enjoy it um, that lay, lay on the top. Um, and I think it would have only, you know, really just jumped out in, in the theater. Yeah. I have, um, I have the the 4k disc, which has an Atmos soundtrack and it is just alive. Yeah. Um, and the music is everywhere. The, the, the sense of, of space and place is great. Uh, I mean, it, we, didn't I don't think we had a terrifically sophisticated sound system in that in the screening the first screening that I saw but it was it was enough and the room like the crowd energy was enough too that was that was the one thing I'm I'm assuming that once things reopen there are going to be a lot of those immediate like what Cineplex does with their digital film festivals where they just throw up a bunch of 2k files and charge you five bucks this one is going to be there because how could you not I want to see it with a crowd that knows it now, as opposed to the yep. experience I had the first time. I want to, I want to see it with people who are going to cheer for miles the second he shows up and, uh, and just never stop. It's um, you know, it's, it's that warmth of character too, that, um, that makes you root for the, the, the underdog, the under Spider-Man dog. I don't know. I mean, there's not a lot of stuff that's surprising about miles as a Spider-Man, right? I mean, he, he is the character he is. He's a kid. He's, he's ambitious. He's got a good heart. He's an artist and he's nervous. That's really like, that's Peter Parker as well, just from a different world. 
and he's awkward, right? He's got that awkwardness and he, and it's a matter of your, you know, I always see, yeah, there's that awkwardness and he's not that confident and he's learning who he, who he is. And I think we can probably all see a little bit of ourselves and, and he's, I guess his, he's very close emotionally, right? Like he, he's, he's dealing with stuff with his dad. He's got his mom. He's He's been forced to this other school. So there's all this stuff. I think they set up so well and so cleanly. And, and, and again, coming back to the story, they just, they did a beautiful, beautiful job with the story of, of really laying it out there very nicely, but they're having these characters that we, and you, you mentioned it before, we know what's going to happen. You know those origin. You you got those fundamental, but they give a little flavor to uh, Aunt May, right? Where she's telling people to leave her room, or you know, and stuff of that nature, and take it outside, and um, and they just they they just amp it up a little bit and give it a little bit new of new breath, which is excellent. Yeah, and giving Miles an actual family as opposed to the sad orphan boy story of Peter Parker that we're all familiar with. Um, Aunt May, you know, Aunt May is great, but she's not his aunt, right? She's no. not Miles's aunt. Miles has a mom and a dad and, and Lauren Velas and, and Brian Terry Henry are just so complex and warm in their, in what the three scenes they have together as an entire family. There is so much density there and so much depth that's created that we get it. We get why, yeah, uh, we get why Jefferson can't talk to his kid. We get why Miles is afraid of disappointing them. We get why Miles's mom uh, can't quite bridge that gap, but does her best. And I, I think that's the thing, right? The, the, the thing about casting character actors in voice performances is that you do get that history that they bring to a role, yeah. the sense of knowing how to steal a scene or how to impose, uh, like how to impose an emotional point on a very small appearance. And it, there's something about animation that brings out voice performances by disconnecting them from the, the person speaking. I don't know how I've, I'm amazed at it. I, I saw an embargoed animated film that is opening later this month and Sasha Barrett Cohen is in it for four seconds. And it's like, Oh, that's Sasha Barrett Cohen. And that's yeah. fine, but he's hired to be comic. And right. like, if you cast Brian Tyree Henry in an animated film, you want him to perform, not just be the funny guy for 10 seconds. And there's, there's, stuff going on with Jefferson Davis's character that we don't even get fully to experience, but it's in his voice. You can feel it. Yeah. No. And, and I, and I think, you know, going back to that, it's, you're not, you know, and that's the beautiful thing about an animation, getting the right people to, to be the characters is you're not coming at it. Typically, you know, Nicholas Cage. Yes. You get that. <laughs> you, you, you feel it, but, but these other ones, you know, possibly if you saw them, you're going to recognize them, but, maybe at the at the beginning you're not sitting there trying to go rack your brain say whose voice is that why do i recognize it who is it um where you just you just fall into the character and you start saying well that's the voice of that character and i'm going to just you know watch along and and play and then you know and then as you said like nicholas cage just can be as crazy as he wants to be especially with that character how how they positioned it which is which is a lot of fun and it and it comes at a point in the movie where you're you're settled in you're settled in you're watching and you're having fun and then it's it's exploring that uh, that other element where you're introducing these new characters yeah i mean i didn't know I think I did know Cage was in it, but I didn't know who he was playing. And right. when Spider-Ham shows up and it's John Mulaney, it's just like, oh my God, of course. Like it's, you get someone who has the retro feel to him already. And then you just 
you know, you, there's a story you told, he was telling it on every talk show that year, that, that Christmas, um, that he, his first reading, his first performance of the, of the uh, role, he didn't know it was a PG movie and he was swearing constantly. And it's his, his readings of those lines. I think it was on, um, it's either Kimmel or, or, uh, or, um, one of the late night guys. Yeah. It might've been the tonight show actually okay. with Fallon. Uh, it's amazing. Because he he does it, you know, if you've ever seen an, an actor slip into an animated performance, yes. it's, it's uncanny. But then the idea that he's swearing constantly as a cartoon pig, that he somehow thought that would be appropriate. It's, <laughs> I want to see that movie. Yeah. But I also understand why that performance wouldn't work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, the other thing, too, that I think works incredibly well is the relationship between two Spider-Mans between Peter B. Parker and, and Miles and having Gwen along to just sort of poke holes in them and, and deflate them because the, the original story concept was that it was a karate kid relationship. If Mr. Miyagi doesn't know anything. So okay. he's okay. just blustering pointlessly through everything because, and this is the point of the film, right? Spider-Man operates on instinct. And yeah. until Miles accepts that, that he doesn't have to think through every step, he can't, win he can't be a hero he can't do anything and having peter parker be absolutely useless as a tutor except that he's teaching him not to need a tutor i i it took about four screenings before i figured that out and it's just like god damn it that is the simplest funniest smartest play right what's it's maybe it's in mystery men where someone says like the greatest lesson you can learn is that you don't need lessons and it's the Sphinx just being a jerk, but this is actually what that is. And we've seen it and it works. Yeah, no, and, and, well, and, it, and I think that ties back to even Mary Jane, a little bit, Mary Jane's speech after Peter Parker died, where she yeah. and everybody's out there and, and she's telling everybody is Spider-Man. Everybody can be Spider-Man. Everybody can be, you know, and, and then they infuse that, that great humor where the, you know, the person beside Miles, you know, Miles says, it is me. And he's like, well, I think it's more of a, yeah, I think she was more generally speaking, I don't know if she's speaking to you. And, but, you know, and it's that whole thing of like, it, it is everybody. And, and this is the nice thing is they take those very common kind of large themes or large story points and they can meet, they, they know they're going to put it in there, but then they can poke fun at it at the same time. Right. Um, and, and it, it is, that's a great point with regards to, you know, just how Peter B. Parker is and then Mr. Miyagi who doesn't know anything because, yeah, it's just, they're riding the bus to, to, yeah. to, to go steal the goober, you know, it's like yeah. all this ridiculous stuff. And Miles is essentially learning by doing it himself. Yeah. Oh, it's just, there's so much in there that just keeps getting better on revisitation. And it's just such a pleasure to, uh, to think about it, to just revisit it. And to also imagine a world where people are just outside swinging around all the time after a year and a half of this, it's going to be nice. Well, and the, the, the other funny thing I've, I've found with it is, you know, they kind of established it early on, but just how, you know, they're just getting beat up and going back. I think at the beginning, we were talking about the Peter B Parker, you know, when miles first meets or meets him in the, in the graveyard and just how smashed he gets <laughs> on his face and stuff like that. And, and it's, it's a matter of, they create this world where, 
you know, that kind of stuff can happen. And then obviously the battle in the collider, you know, that is stuff is happening. People are getting hurt. And it's interesting that they even introduced a death, right? Like the, yeah. the death of, of Peter Parker is pretty right off the top. Yeah. Yeah. And it's pretty violent. It's like a crushing, you know, blow from um, Kingpin. Yeah. And, and it's like, it's not, you know, they obviously don't show it. They kind of show the aftermatter, but it's not, they don't shy away from, from a pretty brutal death there. So. It's true. The, and, and Leah Schreiber, who I thought was doing, I mean, I originally, I thought they got De Niro. Like he's that, he's that good at impressing, uh, at impersonating De Niro's intensity and, and confidence, like the swagger. I did not know that was him. Spent the whole movie thinking it was, it was De Niro or maybe Keitel. And um, he is so good at putting in that immovable object thing, like that yeah. sense that the kingpin will not be denied. And it's his defining quality. Like he's the only one in the movie who's talking in word balloons, but they are perfectly suited to who he is. Yeah. And again, he's scary. Like it's a formidable kingpin, which I don't think we've seen in a while. Like D'Onofrio's good in the Daredevil show, but just because this one doesn't have to even look like a human being and he can just look like a bullet on legs. Yeah. Um, they found a great visual analog to who the character is. And again, that's the other reason that this had to be animated. I don't think that a live action miles, I mean, obviously now with CG, you could do it, but I don't think you would get the density or the texture or the, or just this sheer complexity that is on display here. Like it's, it had to be a comic book come to life. And, 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 you know, we haven't touched upon it, but even Kingpin's motivation for mm -hmm. why he has the collider, right? And and that sheer blindness that he has, that he doesn't really care what the consequences are. He's going to bring back his family, which he drove away because of his consequence. Uh, you know, another, another layer there that it at least humanizes Kingpin. You know, oftentimes the, you know, the villain um is doing something because they want to conquer the world and you don't really there's no really emotional kind of connection to it but because they set it up so nicely um for why kingpin wants to do this again it's just i i really give them kudos on the whole story because there's there's there isn't anything that really ever drove me to say well what where's the motivation or why why is that and just those tie-ins were were really quite compelling it's something the Raimi films got right, at least the first two, where the villains are people who are small scale the same way Spider-Man is. Like they're yeah. they're not world beaters, they're not giant corporate threateners. Norman Osborne wants to be stronger, and that creates the Green Goblin. Uh Otto Octavius, bad idea, science science problems. Now you're a monster. But it's yeah. tragic in a way that the subsequent ones and you know, and the and the Marvel ones give him you know, thieves, basically just crooks to, yeah. uh, to have super suits, which is a nice way of showing you how Spider-Man really isn't an Avenger level fighter. He's just a kid. He's still learning. He's on, un he's untested or he's being tested. Um, there was one, there was a comic book in the nineties, I want to say where some huge apocalyptic event is happening in New York and it just cuts away. There's one little scene where Spider-Man and Daredevil are sitting together just going, well, uh, maybe we could stop a couple of robbers, but there's nothing we can like. We are literally outclassed. There's nothing we can do, and there's that underdog thing that runs through that character that I don't know of any other comic book hero where 
your sympathies are so instantly on side with this guy. He's Mm -hmm. just, whether it's Peter or Miles, he's just out of his league and he's scared and he's going to hurt somebody. Like if he's not careful, he could, he could kill himself or a lot of other people and making it miles here and making him be the guy who tries to be um, empathetic and, and, and talk people out of things before things get worse. And the fact that the Kingpin is twice his age or more and just doesn't give a shit and won't listen to him makes it equally tragic. Right. Because it's true with great power comes great responsibility. That's the line. But with Kingpin, you also see someone with great power and absolutely no accountability. And that's why yep. Spider-Man has to exist. Yeah. Yeah. It's the, it's the yin and the yang. And in another element, just taking it in another spot is that sure. we haven't really talked about is that just how New York felt in this show. You know, I, I think we've seen New York change dramatically, you know, from taxi driver to, you know, what New York is today. Right. Um, and I, I feel like it's the way they portrayed New York. You get that sense that it's just this massively dense um, city, that there are people everywhere, but yet you still have the neighborhood feel. And, you know, at the beginning, Miles just, you know, having to go to this new school and not really wanting to, and his, you know, he's leaving his community. Um, but just that density and just how beautiful the whole, the whole city is and giving this, these vistas and and just even their lighting, like, but it has a very urban feel. And then obviously when they go to Queens, say Aunt May's house, giving that, you know, kind of community or kind of um, um, neighborhood, uh, different kind of neighborhood feel, yeah. but it, it's, it also is a very defined New York, um, which I thought was really fascinating as well. Yeah. Well, and by making Miles a tagger, that also adds a level of interaction with the landscape, with the environment mm-hmm. that maybe we wouldn't see otherwise. Like we're drawn to see surfaces as as vital, as important. Like just that thing with the stickers early on just keeps our eye going to every street sign and every other um, uh, just piece of design. And again, this whole thing was built in a machine. Like it's, uh, it's unbelievably detailed. And I know I'm, I should start as again, I should stop being surprised by how complicated and complex and good these movies are because we've reached a point now where technology can simply be employed to tell any story. Well, it still comes down to the creativity and the, just the, ah, the fun that you have, the fun that the movie invites you to have and just watching it and looking at it and disappearing into it. It is, it's just, it is so much damn fun. I just keep well, doing the same thing over and over again. Yeah. And, and, and do you, you know, and I think, you know, it sounds like we're a bit similar in the sense that we both were going in, you know, turning it on, not knowing you're watching Spider-Man, but I don't think knowing exactly what you were going to get. And mm-hmm. it didn't take me very long until it just caught me and you know, you're looking at something different. You know, you're looking at something special. You're just, you're, you know, I couldn't wipe the smile off my face and you're just, you're just on there for, for a ride. You're just, you're in there enjoying it. And then, and then lo and behold, miles grabs you and then you're rooting for miles. And um, yeah, it's just a, it's a beautiful, beautiful movie. Yeah. That's um, 
it's hard to sort of pivot then into the film that you've made because usually I try to find a link between the choice <laughs> and the and the movie. But Queen of Spades is not a Spider-Man movie, uh, really, in any way. Um, it is about young people in trouble, but <laughs> beyond that, I'm having a little bit of a difficult time building a link. So, I mean, was there anything that that influenced you in? From Spider-Verse to Queen of Spades? Yeah, even uh, in post-production, I suppose, because I'm trying to figure out the timing of, of both projects. No, no, I think um, I think the, the biggest thing for me would be going back to the the, the youthfulness and, and Spider-Man or Miles having to figure it out himself. I think, you know, Queen of Spades, one of the themes that we're, we really tried to work on was, um, you know, Anna's mom because the story is really about a mother daughter a lot of it for me and and Anna's mom um I always envisioned her you know bright young woman who potentially had a child at an early age and so she put her life on hold to raise this child and this child is getting to be around 13 14 or 12 or 13 and Mary is going off and making her life better by you know she's working and she's going to school but she's not really around. And so then Anna, and this is where I would see the relation back to, to you know, Miles, is left to, to do and make her own choices. And I think we can all relate to there are certain things we do in those teen years that you'll we look back at them now and we say, well, that if that would have gone in another way, I my whole life would have been different, you know, whether I would have been hurt or whether I would have made different choices. Or, or even friends that I know that made those choices and are now in a different uh, element. And so that was kind of, that was a big piece for me is that, you know, Anna is left and she's mainly hanging out with older teens and she's making some decisions that maybe she shouldn't be or she shouldn't really be. But her mom is trying to uh, make a better life for them and leaving her alone a bit. Um, and so that, that, would be, that would be some elements where it was pulled. Yeah. Okay, we did it. <laughs> we found a connection. <laughs> My thanks to Patrick White, whose new film Queen of Spades arrives on VOD all over North America this coming Tuesday, June 15th. Thanks also to Laura Steen. She knows what she did. You can find Patrick on Twitter at Cold White Gravy, all one word, and you can find Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse on 4K Blu-ray and DVD from Sony Pictures Home Entertainment. It's also available on Apple TV and Google Play and streaming on Netflix in Canada. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com, where I'm hosting a bunch of podcasts these days and writing the weekly Now streaming newsletter, to which you can subscribe at NowToronto.substack.com. And you can find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. Our theme song is by the last year. If you like it or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're there. Stay home, watch movies, wear a mask if you go out, get vaccinated as soon as you can. I'll see you next time.